let's just get to the next level, focus all of your intensity on just a couple things at a time, and then move on to the next set of challenges. Welcome to season four of the I Make a Living podcast brought to you by FreshBooks. If you are an entrepreneur, freelancer, side hustler, big thinker, or just a straight up dreamer, then this is your show. I'm your host, Demona Hoffman, and I'm one of you. Nearly 10 years ago, I walked away from a corporate media vice president position to launch my own brand. I've learned a lot of lessons along my entrepreneurial journey, and I'm still learning every day. Through this show, I get to see how other entrepreneurs have carved their path to success and share the knowledge with you. Hot tip. You don't need venture capital or investment money as much as you might think you do. I'm talking to Brian Clayton, CEO and co-founder of GreenPal, a mobile app and online platform that connects homeowners with local lawn care providers. Brian built his business from the ground up, choosing not to use VC funding or any investment money at all. Now his company makes over 20 million a year in revenue and continues to double year over year. Brian has a ton of wisdom to share on bootstrapping, long range planning, recovering from big mistakes, ultimately building a business that will continue to grow even when the economy isn't. This Thursday, we'll premiere a brand new feature of season four, our weekly Nerdisodes. Quick, actionable tips on a single area of our guests' expertise. This week, Brian will give us the top five mistakes that new entrepreneurs make and how to fix them. But today, it's all about his story and how he built his multi-million dollar business. You know how we do. We're kicking things off with the question that started it all. Brian, how do you make a living? How do I make a living? Well, I'm the CEO, co-founder of a company called GreenPal. And so in one sentence, GreenPal is like the Uber for lawn mowing. So if you have a house, if you rent a house, own a house, you have a lawn, probably it needs to be cut. Rather than calling all over Craigslist or Facebook, you can just download our app and somebody will come and mow your yard the next day. You pay them right through that. That sounds genius. I am a homeowner and I have had some lawn care issues, which we will get into later. <laughs> but I want to know more about you, Brian, first of all. How did you get into this business? I mean, you've built it into a huge resource for both homeowners and for lawn care professionals. But I hear you started out as a lawn care professional yourself. Yeah, that's right. I was dragged kicking and screaming into entrepreneurship by my father who interrupted me playing uh, Super Mario Kart on a hot summer day. He said, get off your butt. You've got a job to do. You're going to go mow the neighbor's yard. And so he made me go mow the neighbor's grass. And luckily he did because I got done and I got paid like 20 bucks. And ever since then, I was just hooked. I was hooked on owning my own business and kind of working as much as I wanted to work. And so uh, I remember the first thing I did after I got paid was I went to my uh, desktop computer and printed off some flyers off of Microsoft Word. And by the end of that summer, I had like a dozen customers in the neighborhood. And I just stuck with that lawn mowing business. I kept cutting grass all through high school, all through college. When I graduated college, I had to make a decision. Was I going to go get a job somewhere or just stick with this lawn cutting business? I didn't really want to be a lawn guy my entire life, but I said, hey, well, it's going pretty good. Let's just see where I can take it. Made a little business plan. And in over a 15-year period of time, I grew that into one of the largest landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee where I live. I got it over 150 people, over $10 million a year in annual revenue. And uh, over over 15 years, I was able to build that company just for me and a push mower to, to a, a big business. And I sold it in 2013. And after that, I 
took some time off and I thought, what now? And recruited two co-founders and started working on GreenPal. Oh my gosh. I want to know more about GreenPal and how you got that second business off the ground. But I'm curious because I know we have a lot of listeners who started their business out of a particular passion, maybe an expertise, maybe just, I need to make money and this is something I could do, like your dad was saying, get off the couch. (laughs) Did you feel like you needed a certain expertise? Like, how did you go up that learning curve to really get good? Obviously, you must have been very good at your job to be able to amass that number of customers and that kind of revenue in a small business like that, that was growing so rapidly? You know, I think looking back like over 20 years of entrepreneurship, one thing that's kind of made sense to me is to look at your business, no matter what stage of the game you're in, look at it like a video game almost, like 10 levels. And you just got to get through level one if you're just getting started. And like, it doesn't matter about anything else, like get through level one. And that that could mean like 10 grand a month in revenue or or $1,000 a month in revenue, whatever that is, get through that throw up the flag and then get the level two. Don't worry about Bowser or any of these other things on level nine, 10, and 11. Just get through one level at a time. And, and I think that's one thing, like 15 years growing that first business, uh, eight years now in my second business, Green Pal, it's like, don't worry about any of the other stuff. Let's just get to the next level, however we define that, and focus all of your intensity on just a couple things at a time. And uh, it might be one or two things, but throw all your weight into getting those done, getting those solved, and then move on to the next set of challenges. And so for me, like, like 20 years in business, a lot of it has just been learning on the go, but being relentless about moving forward and being relentless about setting those goals year over year and just doing everything I can to focus on just those and, and not worrying about anything else. I'm not the smartest guy. I'm certainly not the most talented, but for me, like my business has been the thing that caused me to level up, caused me to learn, caused me to grow, be a better leader, be more humble. It's like the thing that causes me to move forward in life. And at a macro level, that's one of the things I love about it is that it's, it just causes me to level up. And, you know, I've learned so much building this second business. I'm not even the same person I was eight years ago when I started it. And it sounds like you really had a long range plan. Like you said to me that you didn't want to be a lawn guy your whole life. You had a vision for something beyond that business, even at the time when you were thriving in the business you were in. If I'm honest, I kind of had a chip on my shoulder almost. Like I really wanted to make something of myself. And and I felt like business was the vehicle for me to do that. You can make something of yourself in sports or entertainment or academics or, or whatever. But business is something that we can all do. We can all just get started in and it can be like the vehicle to improve your station in life for you and your family and your stakeholders and your employees. And so for me, when I set that vision, I I really just saw it as, wow, I'm really going to improve my situation in life. I'm really going to improve my position. And and this business, this little lawn mowing business is the vehicle for that. And uh, luckily, I, I kind of reframed it that way because there was a lot of ups and downs along the way. And and if you don't have like a bigger picture, almost like a storyline to your life and like business is the cause of that storyline, you can get discouraged. And for me, like what's gotten me through a lot of those low points, like particularly like the 2008 financial crisis was like, okay, business is the storyline to my life. I'm kind of like the main character in this story. And, and every story, the main character goes through ups and downs. And now I'm going through a, a challenging period of, of this storyline. But if I can get through it, wow, what a great story it'll be. And uh, that's something that has repeated itself in 20 years of business is, is like just looking at it 
from like a wide angle. It's like, okay, you're the hero of the story. And this is the part of the story where you're going to get over this. Like that's made sense to me looking back 20 years. As a former TV producer, I'm all about the story. This mindset allowed him to think bigger and work smarter without reinventing the wheel. I think when you're starting up a new business, and particularly when you're inventing something from scratch that does not yet exist, most tech businesses are that way. You're, you're not just starting a new business like a new restaurant or a construction company or a lawn mowing business. You know, there's kind of a known set of things that you need to do. When you're starting a tech business, you're kind of inventing something that does not yet exist. And I think when you do that, it can help to be solving your own problem. And that's kind of where I was. I was solving my own problem. I was, I knew that a product needed to exist to make like the last 15 years I've spent uh, in this industry a lot simpler, more efficient, quicker, easier for both sides of the transaction. And so at the time, it was like 2013. I, I took some time off. I kind of retired after that. I didn't really have to work anymore. And so I I learned something about myself, like, wow, I need to get back in the game. I'm missing this element of my life. And so I thought, what now? And I saw what Airbnb and Uber and Lyft were doing for kind of these real world interactions. And I thought, okay, an app needs to exist to make this whole thing easier that I know. And I was kind of solving my own problem. Like running that first company, we had grown it to be a pretty big company in our industry. We were well known in our community. And, and so we would get all of these phone calls every day, people just begging us to come mow their yard because nobody else would return their phone call. And as we grew the business, we we no longer did these smaller jobs. We no longer did the $30 lawn mowing, the $40 lawn mowing. So we would keep a list of names and numbers by the phone. And we would we would just kind of refer these names out. So in effect, my business was kind of a referral service. And I thought, okay, an app just needs to exist for what I was doing. And so that was the idea. That was like the value proposition. That was what problem we were solving. And like remarkably, like here we are eight years later, that value proposition hasn't changed all that much. It's still the same thing today that we're trying to solve that we were doing back then, except for now, you know, we're, we've got over 300,000 people using the app. We're doing $20 million in revenue. But the first like two or three years was very much an exercise of faith is like, would people use this thing? Would people get value out of it? And like the first business, we just kept going. The only way to go was just forward. I'm curious to to really dig into that moment of realization that there could be a market for it and really looking at the landscape of what else was out there for people who had this problem. Just off the top of my head, okay, there's Yelp, right? There's Angie's List. You know, there are services that are doing something similar. Did you ever say maybe this is too crowded of a landscape or did you have a different strategy that you felt could be more effective in solving the problem for your customers? Yeah, it's a really good question. So the way people were getting this done and still to this day is you know, when first friends and family recommendations, people in the neighborhood, people from church, whatever, and they would dial for dollars. And if that didn't work, then they would maybe go to like an Angie's List or a Craigslist or a Facebook or a Yelp. And these are great repositories of static information. They are lists of names and numbers, maybe some reviews, but that's about it. As the homeowner, you still have to poll these people and you still have to find out their availability, their pricing, their service quality, what services they offer, and all these things. It's still very much of a manual process. So there's no shortage of repositories of names and numbers. You can always find that for, for anything you need to get done. What we set out to do and what we're still working on is, okay, you push a button 
you get five quotes, you pick the person you want to work with, you hire them, they show up and you pay them right through the app. And then you set them up for the whole season. It just happens magically in the background, like invisible commerce almost. And you can literally get this done without even making a phone call or ever meeting a person. And so that was the problem we were trying to solve was, yeah, the, the introduction, the name and number thing, people have kind of solved that. But the end-to-end experience, kind of what Uber does for ride sharing, did not exist. And that was the problem we were tackling and still are tackling to this day. And so when you're looking for like ways to innovate and ways to bring a new service to the marketplace, you can kind of look at, okay, what's being solved, but not all the way. And that's what we focused on. And the only reason why we were still here eight years later and we're profitable and we're growing is because we focused on just this one thing, lawn mowing. Let's make that as easy as pushing a button. We're not worrying about anything else. We're focusing on this one thing. Yeah, that's really smart. And they always say there's room in the market, but those who really succeed at the level that you are either were first or they were best. And I think there's a subset of that where it's just what you said. It's niching. It's not trying to be all things to all people. And maybe in success, you can expand, but you kind of have to get people to think of you for one thing before they can think of you for everything. And I know it's not just lawns. You're, you're also thinking like snow removal. There could be other, I don't know what's next for Green Pal. Maybe there's something else. We're self-funded. We're bootstrapped. And so that was a decision we made very early on. And when you are funding the company off of its own revenues, you kind of have to be focused. And so for us, that was one of the things we had at our disposal was, okay, we can't control a lot of things, but we can focus on one use case, one problem, and then be the best in the world at that. I think whether you're inventing a new tech product, like what we're talking about, or you're just starting a, a new restaurant or hair salon or construction company at a local level, you kind of have to approach it like, okay, I'm going to be the best at this in my market. That's kind of what you need to, how you need to approach starting a business from scratch because Quite frankly, that's what it's going to take to be successful. And so for us, being self-funded, kind of like that necessity is the mother of invention, it, it was the thing that kind of propelled us forward. Is like we, we didn't have the luxury of getting sidetracked on locksmiths, painters, plumbers, all of these other things that homeowners need. We were like, okay, we're just going to be the best in the world at one thing, push a button, get the grass cut, and develop a relationship with a good lawn mowing service to take care of all of your landscaping needs. We're going to do that, just that, nothing else. And still, that's core to our strategy today. It's like, yeah, we're doing well, but still, we're not like in the default way that you would get the service done nationwide. And so we still have so much further to go in terms of just distributing the platform and the product. And so we're still going to focus on just this one use case. I'm assuming you're entrepreneurial because you're listening to this podcast. And using that logic, I can also assume you are a person of many talents because entrepreneurs tend to be so. So let me take it one step further and remind you that even though you are a person of many talents, try not to bite off more than you can chew. Rome wasn't built in a day, and I've played enough Super Mario to know that Princess Peach takes a heck of a long time to rescue. Hopefully your day-to-day is less stressful than running around a mushroom kingdom, but the principle is basically the same. Take your entrepreneurial journey one level at a time. You know, we're making it sound really good, Brian. We're making it sound really good, really easy. You know, you just get an idea, you really focus in, and you just launch it, and you're a huge success. But I know that's not the real story. That's not the real story. And especially with technology, I, I, as an entrepreneur, definitely made investments that I regretted, but 
It's all part of the learning. Tell me about the tech side and your journey developing the app originally. Luckily, I was naive and I didn't know what I didn't know. So if I had known how hard it was going to be, I probably would have been scared, never would have started it. So that helped me. A little bit of naivete, I think, helps so long as you're not willing to give up. It was a lot harder than we thought it was going to be. I recruited two co-founders who were just as ambitious as I am, and and uh, but none of them knew how to code. I, didn't, I don't know how to code. None of us knew how to build software. And so we believed that all we had to do was just pay a development shop to build what we thought GreenPal should be, and then we'll market it and we'll be off and going. And so we did that. We pulled together our money, like $150,000 is what we invested to build the first version of GreenPal. And we launched it and it was a total failure. It didn't have the features it needed. It was clunky. It didn't fulfill the vision of push a button, get the grass cut. And we we did everything we could to try to bait people to use it. We passed out like 100,000 door hangers all over Nashville, Tennessee, where we started. And, and it was a total failure. We were confronted with the reality of dang, man, if we're going to be in the technology business, we're going to have to learn how to build technology. And that, that was just all there was to it. And luckily, we kind of had like a burn the boats type of uh, situation where my two co-founders quit their jobs. They had very good jobs at Dell Computer and they quit those. And so it was like the only way to move was forward. And so we just thought, okay, let's learn how to build software, however long that takes. And so we went to work on ourselves and on the business at the same time. And it took three years, actually, for us to learn how to build software and build a, the second release. But uh, we had little wins along the way. We had a few people using it, and we were talking to those people as much as we could. And we were able to get the validation to understand that, okay, this is something that people want, people need, and, and it's, it's worth spending the next decade of our life on. Teamwork makes the dream work, especially when your team works well together. Speaking of teamwork, we got this question from a listener in Austin, Texas named Gabby. Hey, Demona, I'm about to start my own business and I'm wondering if I need to find a co-founder. For example, I'm not really great at organization or networking and I need to know if it would be smart to find somebody who is good at those things to kind of balance me out. Thank you. Since Brian found a team that works so well together, I thought he'd be the perfect person to give us an answer. And I see this a lot. I do some kind of free coaching as a hobby for other tech startups and business owners. And I see this a lot. I see an entrepreneur wanting to start a new business. And the first thing they think they have to do is go find a, a co-founder. And I think a lot of the psychology around it is, is like, I just want somebody else who's as crazy as I am to be in the trenches with me because it'll help me feel better. And well, that's true, like that benevolence between you and your co-founder can get you through some low points. Like that's not the reason to go get a co-founder. And, and I think if you're wanting to start a new business, doesn't matter what industry it's in, like you need to look at the relationship between your co-founder and going and getting a co-founder as serious as who you decide to marry, because it's that important of a decision. If the business is successful, you're probably going to be spending more time with, with your co-founder than you are your spouse, as crazy as that sounds. Like the 80, 90 hour work weeks in the early years are very real. So you're going to be spending the majority of your waking hours with this person. And the second thing is, is, is if it's successful, you know, it may last longer than most marriages do, as sad as that sounds. So there's that dynamic uh, to it. And then the third thing is it's actually easier to go get a divorce than it is to unwind a lot of these business partnerships. And so think about it like that. You need to be in like metaphorically in love with your co-founder to the point where it's like, yes, I can't imagine doing this business without them. They bring so much value to the table. They complement 
what I'm good at and I compliment what they're not good at, vice versa. And, and so if you can find that, yes, then it can help you like accelerate your velocity it can, and it can also increase your odds of success. But don't just go get a co-founder because you think you have to. And, and then like the practical side of it is, is, is what Paul Graham t- uh, talks about is like a hacker and a hustler. Like if you're going to start a tech company, like having a hacker and a hustler, somebody can execute the tech side and somebody who's just really good at driving the business forward can help increase your chances of success. So my advice is try to go it alone, if at all possible, and only get a co-founder unless you're absolutely enamored with, with them and you can see yourself spending a decade uh, with them building this business. Yeah, that's um, it's tricky too. I, I hadn't thought of it. I mean, as a as a love coach, <laughs> I know the challenges of having to get a divorce and what needs to go into the decision making process when you're choosing a partner, a life partner, but a business partner. That's a whole other. That's a whole other thing. Absolutely, and and not only are you marrying that business partner, you're also kind of like marrying their spouse too. Because what happens if they get a divorce? Well, guess what. Now half their equity is cut and and now you've got, you know, whatever, 10, 20 percent of debt equity out there. I've, I've gone through that. And so it's challenging and it's hard to see all of the, the ways it can unfold. So I am totally lucky. I, I got two co-founders who are just as crazy as I am and, and they wanted to be more in life. And this business is the thing that kind of caused us to, like, make something of ourselves. And they were just as ambitious as I am that I got lucky. If it had not worked out that way, I don't know that we would be here. And in most cases, a, a bad business partnership is what torpedoes most budding businesses. Yeah. You keep saying they're as crazy as, as you are. <laughs> I want to go back to that moment, Brian, when when you were working 80, 90 hours a week, as you said, and investing, you're bootstrapping, you're investing your own hard-earned money into this business. and then the app doesn't even work the way that you wanted it to. How did you manage? Like literally, how did you manage when you're pouring your savings into this company, you're working constantly? Like what was that like for you in your work-life balance and how financially did you plan for that moment or did you not plan at all and how'd you write it out? It was it was challenging, but success is a lousy teacher, you know, and so for us these failures were the things that that caused us to learn what what would work. And uh, I think at a like at a personal psychology level, you have to have a real fire in your belly to make this business work, no matter what it is. And so for us we really, really wanted to see it happen. We really wanted to see it work. We wanted it to be nationwide. We wanted to have hundreds of thousands of users. And so we were sufficiently motivated to just get through that. But that won't necessarily get you through if the business is actually a bad idea and its time has not yet come. And so and so you kind of have to balance that with, with something a little more practical. And, and for us, you know, we were constantly looking for these little these little wins, little glimmers of hope, little points of evidence that, that we were at least on the right track. And I think a, a, a good source of that is to be always be talking to your users, always be talking to your customers to try to learn, uh, are you solving a problem that they're willing to pay for? And if you're not, what what is that pain point that they would be willing to pay for? And so for us, like in the early days, like we were passing out door hangers and, and getting like dozens of users and they wouldn't even stick around. We would meet with these people and what they would tell us is they were actually upset and disappointed that the app did not work like it should. They were actually disappointed that they couldn't just sign up and a really good lawn mowing service come mow their yard at a great price. They were upset. And so in a weird way, 
that disappointment was validation. It was like, oh, well, at least they wanted it to work. And at least it was something that they that they wish would actually fulfill the promise. Not like they were totally apathetic, like, meh. They were like, I was like let down that this didn't happen. And so for us in the, the first year, that was that was really good validation. It's like, okay, yeah, no, this is actually, we're actually solving a problem that people want to pay for. And then from that point forward, we just always kept that with us. We always tried to meet with people on a weekly basis. We always tried to make it just really easy for them to speak with us, whether it be live chat or phone or email. And we always let that feedback guide what we were doing. And then we would set that against achievable goals that weren't too easy, but they weren't like ridiculous. And then we would celebrate those wins every single year. And the business has doubled every year for the past eight years. That is insane. That is insane, Brian. Are you as surprised as I was? The thought that a service-based business would grow during a pandemic seemed paradoxical at first. Who is thinking about their lawn at a time like this? And then I looked out on my backyard and realized that over the last year, this is where I've been living playing with my kids when the parks were closed and meeting up with friends when indoor gatherings were off limits. And it all made sense. So the thought that a business like this could grow during this time isn't that far-fetched. Plus, Brian already had built an infrastructure that would survive a rainy day or a sunny day or even a snowy day because they cover snow removal services too. So when it first set in, you know, this time last year, we, you know, we were concerned that we were going to have just a flat or a down year. And one thing that enabled me to sleep well at night was that our business was what they call default alive. No matter what happened, we were profitable and that our expenses didn't outweigh our revenue and that we weren't going to get to a point where we were just going to go bust. And so when you're self-funded, that's one of the luxuries you have is that you're always building a profitable business. And so you don't have to worry about like getting too far ahead of your skis and taking on too much what they call burn rate, where it's you're literally burning more cash than you're bringing in. While that strategy does work, I mean, is is how most big, huge businesses are built. In reality, it's a bad bet for most entrepreneurs is that it's a one in a hundred shot. And so for us, we always wanted to take the practical, sustainable, slow and low approach. And so it was because we took that approach that we knew no matter what happened, we were going to survive. And so that was kind of the first thing was like preparation. The second thing was as it started unfolding, we started to realize, wow, we're actually getting lucky here because more people are looking for contactless ways to, to get things done. Nobody wants to meet with somebody to, to, to get something done. And so, you know, like Postmates, DoorDash, Uber Eats, uh, they all had record years. And so that kind of tailwind also brought us up is that people are looking for a way to get things done that they need done in their lives through an interface, through an app, through a website. And so that kind of helped us too. And so, you know, like none of these things matter if you're in the travel space or if you're in the concert space or event space, like you just got decimated, but we got lucky. Um, and, and we got lucky because it, we weren't in the crosshairs of this thing. And we also got lucky that we chose to build this business through funding it off of its own revenues. And so therefore, no matter what happened, we were going to survive. And I really liked that piece also about listening to your users. So if you care to care about my lawn care issues. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I think one of my problems, I've, I've changed lawn care professionals three times in the last six years, uh, which to me seems like a lot. Like I'm the kind of person where like, if I want to work with you, I want to work with you for as long as possible. I think part of my 
challenge is because it's a area I know nothing about. All I know is like, does my lawn look good or does it not look good? And I think I struggle with being able to communicate what's not working for me or what I want to see done because it's not an area where I have an expertise. How would you solve that problem for a homeowner? A lot of, there's a lot of nuances that go into this business. You wouldn't think it's as complex as it, as it is, but it, it actually is. And, and that's why we have focused on just one thing. And so, so the lawn mowing business is pretty low barrier to entry. You can get started with less than $500 in equipment and if you have a truck. And so because it's low barriers to entry, that means that you get a lot of novice business owners that, that get into the business. And so as the homeowner, you kind of have to weed out who knows what the heck they're doing and who doesn't. And, and who is serious about running a business and who's just trying to make a quick buck. And so that's why you, you run into this phenomenon of the case of the disappearing lawn guy uh, is because there's just not a whole lot of barriers to entry to weed out the folks that are serious about running a, a good business for their customers and the ones that just aren't. And so our platform helps homeowners kind of sidestep those folks. We measure and grade service providers on like a dozen different dimensions. And one is, how often do they show up on time? Uh, another is how often do they get booked for a second lawn mowing? And we use these KPIs to understand, okay, these are actually the reliable service providers and these are the ones that, that flake a lot. And so let's demote or expel these ones and promote these. And then also there's a standardized like rating system in terms of you can qualitatively give stars like we're all accustomed to now. But it's those intentional uh, feedback loops and also the passive ones that kind of we use to, to score, okay, in your neighborhood, who's really good at mowing lawns and at a fair price and who's not? That way, as the homeowner, you can sidestep that whole experience. And then you have them come mow and you want to, just, like you said, set it up for years. You don't want to like be going through this routine every year. But if for some reason it doesn't work out, with a touch of a button, you can get new bids and hire somebody else. And so we make it easy to get introduced to somebody who is reliable and if for whatever reason it doesn't work out, to find somebody else who's reliable. I love it. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your story with us, Brian. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. At the end of the day, a business will only go so far unless there is follow-through at every level. I found that it's one of the most important qualities when it comes to selecting business partnerships and hiring my own team. Hopefully, this will inspire you to do the same. Here are some other key points from today's interview. You are the main character of your own movie. So if you don't like where the story is headed, you need to change the narrative. Look for partners who will complement your strengths and who are as invested in the business as you are. Remember the words default alive and consider that venture capital or investors aren't your only options for growth. For more information on GreenPal, check out yourgreenpal.com. And we have a new feature this season. Every Thursday, our guest of the week will join me for a short, info-rich episode where we can nerd out on one of the topics of their interview. In this Thursday's Nerdisode, Brian Clayton and I will be talking all about mentorship, how to find the right mentor, get the most out of the process, and more. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode or Nerdisode. The I Make a Living podcast is brought to you by FreshBooks. Balancing your books, client relationships, and business isn't easy. FreshBooks gives you the info and time you need to focus on your big picture, your business, team, and clients. 
Right now, you can go to freshbooks.com slash podcast and take advantage of an exclusive offer that's just for our podcast listeners. And while you're at it, check out all of the resources made available to you through our show notes. Our executive producer is Francisco Erzmendi. Editorial and content producer is Leo Shell Villanueva. Our audio engineer and composer is James Morris. And I am Damona Hoffman, producer and host. You can follow me at Damona Hoffman and FreshBooks at FreshBooks on all of the social platforms for more tips, tools, and resources because it's your business. See you next time.